You're listening to Travel Tales with Fergal. Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe and you're very welcome to the podcast. We've a great guest today for people who are interested in adventurous travel off the beaten track. My guest is Tom Bartnock, who's the travel editor of the Irish Examiner. So I found it really fascinating to see what five places would Tom pick from his travels from all over the world. Tom shares some great tales from America, Iran, South Africa and Switzerland to name a few spots. Tom is very much into conservation and loves travelling into the wilds of nature. And he wanted to make his first trip post-pandemic to be a very special one. So I loved hearing about his recent trip to Churchill, Manitoba in Canada, which is known as the polar bear capital of the world. So let's hear now from Tom about his great travel tales. Tom, yeah. it's great to see you. Um, I'm delighted. Eventually, I've got you on the podcast. Yeah, it's fantastic to, to be here, Fergal, and join a illustrious list of predecessors before me. Good, great company. And, you know, you're as, as a travel writer and you look like a travel explorer. You've got an amazing jumper on you there. So where is that from? Uh, oh, yes, this is my, um, it's a, an Icelandic sweater, which I bought in, I suppose, in Reykjavik a couple of years ago. And these are one of those things where you go into the, the stores in Reykjavik and you go, oh, that's actually not a bad deal for like. Um, for Reykjavik. You know, or you're like that, that's not a bad deal for 65 euro and then you're, you realize you've forgotten the decimal and it's like 650 or something but i think this was maybe it was still an, an extravagance but um worth it in the end because it was a, a lazy irish wind won't go through it it's, yeah. it's been worth the investment actually the, the most expensive meal i ever had was in it was a bit like that in in Reykjavik. i can't remember i've blocked out what it costs but i remember at, you know the other way if you have a really good meal and it's expensive you go, it's worth it. But this time I went, it's not worth it. Yeah, Icelandic fare was um, pretty good, but uh, not 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 necessarily worth the price tag. But then again, I guess it's so expensive up there to farm everything and what have you. And did, actually, just while we're talking about there, did you like the place? So it's a rocking town, isn't it? Uh, Reykjavik is, is great. I've been there in the summer. I was actually there for the Euros when they were playing France for that match a couple of years ago. So that was a great buzz. And um, wow. I've been, been there uh, in, in winter as well, you know, where you barely get you know, might start, you know, the sunlight might, you might see sunlight by 11 in the morning, you know, and it's gone again at, you know, two or three in the afternoon. But so you have that kind of real kind of cozy win- winter atmosphere. And um, it feels, I mean, almost like uh, a home from home in a sense. Mm. I don't know how you felt, but yeah. it's quite, you know, the very kind of um, relaxed, unpretentious people and kind of the whole lifestyle um, kind of equates somewhat to Ireland. I'd probably argue that they're a bit more outdoorsy than we are and they're, you know, all of the the, the best of gear, as we'd say, but... um, um, yeah, sadly, not as 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 close as it as it once was with the kind of fall of Wow Air. It felt so, yeah. you know, just up the road. Everybody was going to Iceland, which was causing its own issues again. But um, I mean, you can still get there with Iceland Air, but it definitely became um, a bit of a stomping ground of mine for a while because I was flying to the states quite a lot too, and would go through um, Reykjavik. So you mentioned the states, so that leads me into your first number one. New yes, Jersey, and and, and, a, and a nightly selection su- su- suggestion, but of my five today. But um, mm-hmm. I wanted to choose uh, New Jersey and the Garden State because I guess that's what started the travel bug for me back when I was nineteen. I had never really <clears throat> travelled um outside Ireland growing up we were the kind of the family who would head down to the Ring of Kerry we had a caravan and a Ford Fiesta and I would be like mortified that like caravan was going to capsize the Ford Fiesta every summer as we kind of uh, towed towed (laughs) off but so when I was 19 I made my first um solo trip overseas I had gone to Paris I think the year before um, when I was 17 so a little, a little bit before that so my first major trip was to uh, the to New Jersey on a J1 which I guess is at, at the, the cliche rite of passage for many an Irish student and I subsequently went on to um, spend four summers 
in New Jersey and the um, in Cape May County, so the very southern peninsula of the state, kind of opposite um, Delaware. And I guess I'll even still, you know, with all the traveling I've done in the meantime, I'll still never, you know, forget that utter adrenaline of initially, you know, you you catch. I mean, I guess you start, you see some some land in Canada, first of all, and it seems to go on forever. And then suddenly some little villages or towns in Quebec come into view and then you're over the States. Anyway, and I guess eventually I made it to the, the, the seeing all the spaghetti junctions of northern New Jersey and like metropolitan New York and seeing like the States beneath you, which is still is still is a buzz to this day. But that first time, like landing in, in Newark in the, the heat of the summer and heading into Manhattan in the evening, we all would stay, I think, for the first night in Columbia University. Yeah. It's just I guess growing up, excuse me, everything about the States is so iconic to Irish people. So every experience was iconic, you know, uh, seeing a, a deli, uh, you know, a limousine, uh, the, like every possible site felt like, you know, like I was in a, a movie. And it took, I would say, weeks and weeks for that, like initial energy to kind of um, subside. I never tended to gravitate towards the the states growing up in terms of wanting to go there. And it was purely down to, I think, an American uh, convenience store was recruiting in UCC where I was studying at the time and they were organizing accommodations. So that was kind of the what 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 swung New Jersey. And um, and so I ended up um, working there and kind of, I guess, starting this love affair that I've had with the States ever, ever since. Um, and so I've probably been, I'd say, 30 or 40 times over the years, um, you know, through work. And then I was dating an American for a few years and living in Pennsylvania. And I've kind of lived um, um, probably three or four years, you know, with all my bits and pieces um so uh, but new, new jersey was a, a you know a great place when you're young and um you know the kind of the the beach life and then kind of the access that you know i mean the thought of going to like driving to philadelphia for a cheesesteak because exactly. everyone you know from there was like driving when we're there they're like you know 16 or 17 where we kind of had in in, in that sense of liberty maybe a slight well i at least i had growing up in east cork a slightly more delayed um adolescence but um so it was um really an incredible experience and I love um I I really love the kind of the positivity you get in general out of Americans and their reaction to you as an Irish person and I think we're kind of lucky um I think we're kind of you know uniquely positioned in Ireland and that we have that sense of community in Europe and sense of belonging and also um in the states as well you know we can kind of fit into both or at least i kind of i kind of get that sense of home and in both of them you're describing my uh, i went to uh, j1 to america and you're describing it exactly as if it was me because i went to new jersey as well oh we? and i went to Wild, i went to wildwood Oh, wow. okay. I, I trained in Wildwood. <laughs> so we did our, we did our, 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 like, um, it was a Wawa convenience store. I don't know where they, they're probably were there, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, in my day. In Wildwood. <laughs> yeah. In Wildwood and Wildwood, I was going to say. Yeah. But, but you, uh, do you know what's funny? But, it, when I was there, I never made it to Cape May. It was terrible. Imagine, like, Cape May was literally about six <laughs> ten Cape. miles. Yeah, ten miles. It was on yeah. my on my to do list. On your bucket I, list. Yeah, but I never I, made it. That's gas. Um, and um, I suppose it's pre pre Google as well, so its proximity was never really kind. No, of... I kind of knew, but it was just I was. But I mean, <laughs> but you just you describe it was on my list, but I yeah. I did that. You know, I did the going up to Philadelphia to get the the cheese steak, and I actually saw you too. They were doing um. Octung Baby. I was just reading about it because it's their anniversary, 30 year anniversary. So I saw you two in Philadelphia. Oh, unreal. Okay. And uh, um, you're describing is that, and even being in New York, I forgot about Columbia University because I stayed there as well. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, a, a, to- a, a total buzz. I'll still never forget. It was the first time I ever had that kind of felt that, um, you know, humidity. And also, even in those, so that was 2000, in those 21 years, I've definitely even seen a, you know, a, a shift 
kind of in in New York, like even like in terms of like you don't see that level of kind of brash limousines anymore that would kind of ship tourists up and down to Atlantic City. That whole scene has gone. And New York, even though back then I felt it had maybe a little bit more of an edge, you know, walking through communities and kind of um you know Chelsea and you know the West Village which have all all become so um you know gentrified I guess to use that kind of term now and so it's been definitely cool to see that way that that New York has transitioned as you would expect in 20 years but you just don't really you kind of sometimes see your adult life as just kind of one big chunk and, and a growing chunk but um, it's definitely seen some changes. Gravitated elsewhere than in my, in my mid-20s, but kind of in the last, I'd say, 10 years, also kind of coinciding with my travel writing, I've spent an awful lot of time in the States and on my I visa, which has been great and enabled me to kind of spend extended periods in the country. And I guess, um, first and foremost, I love um, just the various, the, like the varying kind of, like the topography and the habitats you experience in the States, because... I love wildlife so you know be it kind of you know the 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 rocky alpine vibe in Colorado or kind of the the New England mixed forests or you know the deserts I drew actually drove um across my last trip before the pandemic I finally drove across the states and that was um I guess something I'd always wanted to do but um was a bit um apprehensive about the logistics about it but I guess once I had just booked a car and and taught myself that I have to get this car from Philadelphia to San Francisco in about two weeks you kind of figure out all all the rest um so I was writing a piece for the Irish Independent with that so I guess I did it in a slightly more um curtailed timeline not that many people will be able to kind of invest more than two weeks on a holiday anyway but um it was yeah a really incredible experience and also to see how every individual state be it you know West Virginia or or Oklahoma New Mexico wherever all very much had its individual identity which was um not surprising but really cool to experience kind of in a fast forwarded um experience to do that in two weeks, was there lots of driving then or was it OK? Is, is it doable or were you? Was oh, it was definitely it- doable. I mean, it was it wasn't. I mean, some days were longer than others. The last leg actually from Southern California to San Francisco was the longest. But um, it was kind of pretty much a state a day. I can't remember exactly how many I did, but it was probably 12 or 13 across. Um, yeah, I spent a night in West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Arkansas, I think it was, yeah, Utah, two nights in Utah, New Mexico. Um, but it's cer- certainly doable. Um, I, the, the main zinger in terms of cost was the um, the one-way fee <laughs> for the, the drop-off rental. But um, otherwise, it was uh, great. And I, I, I also wanted to kind of get off the motorways. So that kind of added time again, because otherwise you're just kind of driving through a pretty anonymous American archery, right? So it's kind of good to kind of get off um some of the uh, much of the time and, and experience those kind of you know um almost like backwater american towns which had seen better you know long route 66 for example and yes yesteryear america to a degree you know and was there anywhere then sort of on the route that you were surprised by that you weren't expecting that you loved I was surprised by Nashville because I'm not really a country music guy, but I felt the vibe there. There was a great energy there in the city. It's very much becoming a like a happening city for like young people to move to in a startup scene. But beyond a place I really loved then was um, Memphis, uh, Tennessee, because I mean, I like kind of blues and what have you so that had a real that had the music going for it while also having a bit more of a, an edge than the Nashville so I mean you know there was amazing landscapes like you know Monument Valley in Utah and whatever but I knew I would love that anyway but I think it was um those kind of mid-southern states um were kind of the surprise for me and I hadn't really been to that region I've been to Virginia but that was about it but so that was um uh, a, a great surprise there the next place then on your list maybe that's why you you like you, you like snow maybe it's Switzerland <laughs> Switzerland, yeah. I, I chose Switzerland because um I guess to represent the uh the Euro the European in me. Uh growing up uh, prior to my um 
my run-ins with New Jersey, I had never really traveled, but I always had a, a, a love and a curiosity for foreign languages. Um, I was... Um, I had an, an an unhealthy obsession with the Eurovision Song Contest, I'd say, from about the age of six, where I would be just fascinated by all these, like, when, every, when all the countries used to speak or sing in their own languages. And um, I would buy, like, dictionaries when I was younger. And um, I never really excelled then, ironically, at, as, at languages in school. But I ended up, um, I wasn't great at rote learning. Um, so I ended up um, eventually I failed my leaving cert the first time around getting enough points to study German, which is what I wanted to do. And that subsequently took me to um, uh, kind of about three years I spent um, in the lake, the kind of the greater Zurich area, I guess you would say one year living um, in uh, Lake Constance, Lake Constance on the Swiss German border where I did my Erasmus year. And then I subsequently lived in um, Zurich for two years. That was, I guess, and this was, I guess, on the back of New Jersey where my um, German professors back in UCC were like, why are you going to New Jersey for your summers? <laughs> when you should be going to you know a German-speaking country but eventually the only reason the only way I was ever going to learn a language was by going there and immersing myself and I probably learned more um German out there in two weeks than I had in my previous you know six know. or like what would it be eight or nine years so um yeah so Switzerland was I kind of would describe sometimes as going on a date with a very good looking a very good looking person perhaps not the most stimulating of personalities and that <laughs> was a really beautiful and I spent a, you know a good bit of time there and lived in downtown Zurich so kind of gave it my all but um so it was wonderful in having that kind of access to to Europe and um Switzerland in its own right is a, is a uh, you know a uh, extraordinarily beautiful jaw-droppingly stunning uh country and then it's also obviously on the doorstep to all its neighbors so we would you know go hitchhiking to Liechtenstein or take the the, the train to Strasbourg or um you know Germany Austria Italy they were all kind of on, on their doorsteps but so while I really enjoyed the beauty of Switzerland it was also um uh, a challenge to live there and I feel that the Irish and Swiss mentalities can be quite um, I would say for Europeans quite polarized and that we are quite, you know, loquacious and chatty and we dare I say um, we like our small talk, whereas the Swiss really would have an, an, an aversion and uh, dare I say almost like a suspicion of that. So even with my I taught in um, a state secondary school for two years and I mean, even I mean, I guess that there's certainly a formality to to living out there from the way you know they they have I guess even from a linguistic point of view they have their formals so and even you know be beaten beat in the supermarket where the the cashier is addressed by her you know Frau Schmidt to the to the checkout you know versus you know well Ashling come to yeah. the checkout we say here you know yeah. or you know colleagues in my school where you know there was very little element of you know small talk and um even you know asking someone um how they were would almost be you would you would feel at times quite invasive you know they don't see the value in small talk at all so um that was an interesting experience to kind of navigate that but also um really appreciate uh my irishness i guess and kind of how um even though sometimes out there i felt like i was kind of the token comedian because he can crack a joke you know <laughs> i think that was just kind of like being irish by default and i've kind of really um learned to learned to value that in switzerland so that's kind of why i I also wanted to choose that in my destinations as that it um you know i guess represents my i my love of of europe and um you know um no matter where you go um like whether it's like athens or kiev or helsinki you do have that connection of being european which is really amazing and like powerful um but it also made me appreciate my my irishness to a great degree as well and like you're really in the center of europe there aren't you like so it's, you're really aware of how easy it is to go to completely different countries so easily yeah no for sure and what's cool about switzerland too they have such a kind of a linguistic dexterity you know you hop on a train from um we'll say uh zurich to i well you know you could go through three languages if you're going from you know zurich to ticino in the italian part or 
you know, Graubund and if you go to Davos where they'll have like um, messages in Romance or, you know, obviously French down in Geneva or Lausanne. So even the conductors, you know, they have just incredible language skills and each of those kind of four linguistic regions have their own identities and then much more beyond that as well, you know. Walk, walking, you know, doing even like, you know, cheese trails and Gruyere or boating trips on like, you know, Lake Ticino to popping up to, um, you know, the Appenzeller Mountains all in an afternoon. They have an incredible um, breadth of destinations for a small country. And I guess what's really cool about Switzerland is it's that accessibility too. you know, you can leave your apartment and end up almost in many a nook and cranny of the Alps simply by public transport. So they, they're really blessed in that sense. So next is very different then. We're going to Africa now to Cape Town. Another amazing spot. We're off to Africa. But yeah, so then they actually tie in together as well in the sense that um I guess Switzerland was kind of during that whole kind of Celtic tiger period. And I had the choice to maybe head back to Ireland, but I guess I slightly wanted to kind of rebel against that Celtic tiger aspect occurring back in Ireland. So I decided to move down to um, uh, Cape Town in South Africa. So I volunteered initially, you know, uh, on a standard trip with, I think that was organized through Use It, which who are no, 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 no more. I had the same crew I would have done my J1 through. I had heard in advance that Cape Town was a pretty amazing city beside that, but I don't think I ever, there's I, no idea what I was in for in terms of like how amazing it really was. Um, so that would have been a very kind of opposite experience to, to, to Switzerland in that like, um, you know, South Africans were extremely, um, and you know, warm and opening and um, social, and I, I really kind of found my feet there. I initially went down to I was working in um, a public breastfeeding clinic, actually in a um, a Cape Colored community, Afrikaans speaking community called Elsie's River. So I would typically volunteer during the the week, and I'd um, a host mother in the northern suburbs who was also my boss eventually ended up I also, it was also kind of the, the, the main place I kind of I'd come out to, to to friends and dribs and drabs over the years but that was kind of the first place I lived where I was kind of you know totally out so that was kind of a whole other you know um awakening as well which was amazing and um Cape Town would be would be would be known for being a very kind of ex- extremely progressive city actually and I was also when I was there kind of coincided with the um the legalization of gay marriage in South Africa when it was maybe the third or fourth country you know beyond Belgium Holland and Canada to legalize it that was kind of um pretty special as well but um so I eventually then ended up staying uh, working with the non-profit organization where I um initially started volunteering so then I was one of the kind of the project um assistance I guess so I would go out to be at like a an ostrich reservation and see how the students were doing or a primary school and what have you and then it was all quite accidentally that I oh I joined a gym for the first time which was like a a, a big thing and then I wrote a story um called um which w- was a lot punnier back then than it is now but it was called Pex and the City about <laughs> the gym the gym lifestyle in Cape Town and it was the first story I never had a, a kind of a a desire to I always loved language but never had a a desire to um to write before but I kind of felt compelled to write about my experience down there and um the Mail and Guardian one of the main newspapers um accepted it and it was actually featured in all their kind of um I think they're called uh, newspaper placards, those kind of um, signposts that represent the headlines of a newspaper. Oh, yeah. So that like all around South Africa, there was like pecs in the city placards on the Sunday, which was quite hilarious. And then I guess one thing led to another and I uh, eventually ended up um, interning for Men's Health magazine down there. And it was on the back of that that I um, cold called the Irish Independent when I moved back to Ireland and started my accidental uh, travel writing stint. It must have made it must kind of leave a special place in your heart, then. Do you know what I mean? Because um, of that, massively. yeah. And it's actually, I mean, the Cape Town is known as the mother city anyway, so it definitely has that nurturing, um, 
uh, you know, kind of feeling in, in me. And um, I would wake up in, in, in the morning and this is, uh, you know, when uh, I, at the, even the, the beginning when I was living in the Northern suburbs in like suburban Cape Town before I moved into the city. And I would, you know, literally have butterflies in my stomach being in love with the country, you know, just waking up and having that wonderful heat and driving to work with, you know, Table Mountain in the background and, you know, you um, so much, uh, notwithstanding the massive, massive social problems and crime issues, um, there's still like such a, a contentment amongst the people down there and, you know, the nature was spectacular. You know, you drive around the, the Rotus here um, hospital bend and you've got like Vildebeest and Zebra, zebra grazing at the foothills and... Yeah. Um, just a really um, special place, and as I mentioned, you know, with the with the the people, and also like the vibrancy of the all the languages, and um, the um, you know, the, I, I guess they call it um, the the Rainbow Nation for for a good reason, and um, you know, the magic of just like road tripping with friends and outside Cape Town, and you know, as someone who loves really loves wildlife, you know, just the buzz of seeing all these kind of flora and fauna being like, you know, the penguins down on um, the Cape Peninsula or Boulders Beach, I should say, or, you know, you know, just an ostrich strolling around outside suburban Cape Town or the baboons. It's uh, not that all that kind of encroachment now in Cape Town is really spreading as the, the, the middle class grows, but um, uh, it's still a, a really special place. And actually, when I came back to Europe that time, it was with a view to um, to move to Cape Town. I did my my dip as a teacher in kind of one year back here between the two years I was living down there. And um, I'd moved back to Ireland to save, move back, and, and Switzerland, actually. All the years kind of jump in and there's kind of gaps here and there. It was kind of Cape Town, Switzerland, Ireland, and vice versa. But um, I moved back to, to Europe, shall we say, to save for an apartment in, in Cape Town. And then, like I say, I started travel writing. I was, you know, very much, you know, out. So, you know, had much kind of more meaningful relationships with my friends so everything was kind of going better for me up here and um I have not been back to South Africa since so, <laughs> and that is 11 years now and probably ties into my kind of all or nothing personality where I think I mean sure I could have availed of press trips down through the years to Cape Town um and elsewhere but I think I would it's probably a little irrational on my part, but I probably would find it a bit traumatic just going down there on a 10 day press trip. Um, but um, it's still very much um, my dream to, I've, I mean, nowhere's really touched there since. Mm. Um, might would be kind of a, a dream to certainly, you know, spend a, an extended period of time down there. I've kind of an elderly father at home and kind of, you know, you have that in the, the circle of life where you kind of have, um uh duties as a as a child um but it's um you know i cannot wait to be making that long haul flight down to cape town again someday soon i remember when i was there being around uh, the friendship area and going gosh to have a summer house or a house here will be it's just such a stunning area and we i stayed in cable beach area around there and it was just, it's just amazing. Like, absolutely. Kind of reminds you of Sydney a bit, you know, that kind of vibe. But Yes, I think they compare it to, I've been to Sydney, I haven't been to Miami, but they kind of compare those kind of three in terms of lifestyle. Plus, I think it's quite similar to Northern California as well um, in terms of landscape. But yeah, and I mean, they have an incredible food scene. And what I loved about being in Cape Town back in, you know, 15, well, 2006, 15 years ago, now, my goodness, 15 and kind of 13 years ago, was um, I felt they were very much um, pioneer. I mean, I mean, sustainable sustainability and free range and all that kind of ethical food and local food and, and, you know, planting indigenous rooibos gardens was um, very much, or sorry, Renosterfeld gardens was very much um, part of their rooibos is obviously the tea, but it's very much part of um, their, their lifestyle down there. I mean, you, you'd call that kind of like, I mean, a few years ago that was being kind of, I guess, branded as kind of hipster, hipster, hipsterized living up here yeah. and in the state, but it was kind of very much a, a movement down in 
um, Cape Town. So I was kind of really grateful to have been kind of around that kind of scene back then. So you mentioned then you know, you, you're doing the writing and obviously through that you've done press trips and the one that you picked out of, oh, and I'm sure you've done many, but the one you picked is Iran. Iran, yeah. I guess I wanted to choose Iran in that, um, and I, 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 press trips are always generally gassed. They're kind of like, you know, Big Brother on tour um, for, you know, six or seven days. But um, because they can be a little bit curated, I tend to kind of try to do my own thing as much as as much as I as much as I can but um this is one I didn't want to turn down um I get the the reason I chose this this one out of the others was simply because I guess Iran was that kind of quintessential example of the destination that brought the cliche that travel broadens your horizons so I get I guess I would have been apprehensive about travel this was and when it was just this day, this time two years ago, yeah, was that before the pandemic? In my, you know, all our times are a bit off. Yeah, it was awesome, October 2019. So not too long ago. Um, it was organized by the Irish Embassy, actually, as guests of the Ministry of Tourism. And, uh, you know, this this had coincided with, I mean, obviously, they've got a horrific um or you know lgbt uh, you know record human rights records so i was a bit iffy about that first first start <laughs> and also um you know i think the, the week beforehand this is the time that um i think an australian blogger com- couple had been um jailed for flying their drone over what appeared to them as a pretty innocuous government site so they were arrested and um were thrown into some horrific pokey in Tehran and they've been been released since but I was certainly I mean that happens sometimes with, with, with places I go to I remember you know with the likes of Dubai where you know they've also and Qatar are very questionable human rights record and you really wonder or at times kind of resent maybe promoting tourism in those destinations while, while, while you also kind of want to separate the, the politics of a country from its kind of natural kind of boons but off I went anyway to Iran it was a it was an incredible but strange experience I had a, a really um uncomfortable <laughs> Uh, scenario with emigration getting in even though I, like I say I was officially there uh, as a guest of of the state and with the official people and what have you but um, I was you know called aside to one of those kiosks where some guy in in Farsi wanted to question me more and his English wasn't great and my Farsi obviously wasn't great <laughs> but it was a, a, what I would describe as one of my certainly more hostile border situations and kind of wanted to know more of what I was doing and sure what could I'm with the Cork examiner you know what I mean <laughs> that name resonates with your average Iranian but I eventually got in but it kind of um shook me a, a little yeah. I have to say and that I was in but was I out but um so um but uh, you know, time ticked on and we sent, settled, settled into the amazing tour. We went from Tehran and flew down to Isfahan. So it was kind of a tour of ancient Persia and all the incredible um, mosques and temples of that um, of that time. And um, some of them are very new age as well. I mean, they seem ancient and you find that they're, they're built in the 70s or whatever. But the architecture was absolutely stunning. The people, I would say, I would have said maybe Mexicans before, but I would say that they were the, the friendliest people I've ever encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, um, there's kind of a lost in translation Iranian etiquette culture it's called tarav where i mean you know it's kind of that kind of those situations are kind of oh go on go on go on go on and then after three times you eventually accept the cup of tea you know but if you accept it on the second time it's a total no-no so it's kind of tricky to kind of um get to get 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 to grips with what's right and what's wrong but what was really unique i felt in iran was um people would come up to you uh, you know, inquiring where you you were from with a general curiosity of where you were from. I had kids offering me ice cream. You know, people come up and that's kind of their, that's um, hospitality aspect of Taraf. But, um, and you're kind of, I guess what's awful is, you know, you you kind of get a bit of um, a jaded suspicion of people sometimes from traveling, you know, like, 
what's this guy up to? Or is she sending me off to the, the market to try and buy her friend's carpet or whatever? But um, it soon became clear that this was a, a very uh, genuine, if sometimes orchestrated kind of um, routine that Iranians do. So that was amazing to, uh, not uh, so that was interesting to see, but not least was kind of the very relaxed way of life out in Iran and very family friendly. So come, come evening in all the, town squares and what have you everyone would congregate you know to have their um, picnics and play badminton or soccer and or chess and it just seemed a very almost like I mean I've tried like I said I've been to you know Dubai and Qatar and you know the Suez Peninsula and a bit bit of North Africa and but this certainly seemed almost like um, a Mediterranean kind of relaxation way of life and there was very, very, very few burkas to be seen, which surprised me. So it, it, it certainly came across as quite one of the more progressive towards women um, destinations in the in the Middle East. And you know, Iran, would you recommend Iran to someone, you know, an adventurous traveller as somewhere to go to as a holiday? Oh, I mean, I, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. Felt very safe. Um, but in terms of safety and sites, um, food, obviously, I'd um, certainly recommend it. And it really kind of um, eroded kind of any yeah, and preconceptions I, I may have for future destinations. I, I saw you, I think it was tweeting or it was Instagram or something, but you were saying that you really wanted to make your first trip away after you know now that we could go traveling that you wanted to be something special so where did you pick <laughs> <laughs> uh uh churchill manitoba the polar bear capital of the world <laughs> Glad you so, pronounced uh, it. I, I was struggling with the pronunciation manitoba manitoba yeah um so yes like you say i guess i mean i always appreciated travel i didn't need kind of the pandemic to kind of give me that kind of sense of of that but um I guess it did kind of crank up the idea that life is a bit shorter than maybe you may think. So for that first trip, I really wanted to kind of do something that I always really wanted to do. And that had some kind of meaning behind it for me, I guess. And so I'm not quite sure when, but I mean, it wouldn't, I mean, I guess since the dawn of the internet, I had read of um, Churchill and how it's, um, the southernmost migrating route in the world for polar bears on Hudson Bay in Canada. And um, every summer, one of the stronger polar bear subpopulations, um, when once the ice melts, they become terrestrial for several months and um, converge on the land, which is now... Um, quite an, a small but established town called Churchill. And so I decided to um, head off. It all happened, you know, this is kind of something I'd looked into planning a year in advance and was checking out, um, you know, train journeys from Winnipeg to Churchill. It's a two and a half um, day train ride, one of the only um, rail routes in the world, which is built on permafrost. So it actually was destroyed by a very bad snowstorm during the pandemic. So it was out of action, excuse me, for several months. It had actually been owned by Americans with perhaps not a massively, massively vested interest in, in, in its upkeep anymore. And so it's since been um, bought by um, a Native American cooperative. Um, so um, the train line is back, but to make a long story short, I ended up, because of my timeline, I ended up, flying there so there was certainly a bit as as Greta would say fleek scam flight shame flight guilt (laughs) about taking three three flights Dublin Toronto Toronto Winnipeg and Winnipeg Churchill to write to go on what was what's been brand what what's branded a conservation journey um I was with some of the world's leading polar bear scientists um so it was a pretty incredible experience to kind of um, land in this small little town where people have learned to live, you know, literally side by side by po- with polar bears over the years. And they're, um, you know, they've had fatalities in the past, but now they've have a very effective 
um, polar bear alert program, whereby if you see a polar bear um, coming into town, you simply call a hotline and the local rangers, then they actually have a, a, what they call um, a, a, the polar bear jail. So it's an old airport hangar, which has now been um, used as a polar bear um, catchment facility. And so polar bears are um, caught, sent there, um, kept for one month without food so they I guess um, have um, a negative association with human contact and then they're helicoptered out further into the wilderness um, so I mean you can sure bump into them in the town and there are curfews I remember one night I was like I wonder if I pop out now and see I mean the north would the northern lights be out now and then I realized that um it's uh, 10 p.m. and yeah, I can't go outside. So <laughs> that kind of that that solved that. But um, I traveled with a, a company called um, Frontiers North, who they were the like the pioneers of this whole kind of tundra boggy um, tourism, where you could go out onto the tundra and kind of um, view the polar bears in a non-invasive way, and then they subsequently. Some of their partners founded the International Polar Bear, Polar Bears International, which has become the leading solely dedicated polar bear research facility and organization in the world. They have their headquarters there, which we checked out. And then we essentially headed out in the tundra for um, three days. Um, So it was like a a bus out to some depot and then you hop on um, uh, a tundra boggy, one of these. And then they now use... They've just now just launched their first electric vehicle, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And you head out for a couple of hours before that this tundra buggy backs into what's called as the tundra lodge, almost like this kind of um, space lunar style train hotel of about six carriages in the tundra, um, where you stay for three days. I think it was probably the first time in my the only time in my life that I didn't touch ground for three days. You know, you're not allowed outside for safety, obviously, because some of your listeners will probably know that polar bears are the only mammal said to actively to, to predate on humans. I know they've had some issues in, in Svalbard in Norway, where I also visited with polar bear attacks on humans. And sadly, they they never end well, with, end well for the polar bear either. So um, they obviously really want to avoid these scenarios. Um, that was kind of the, the backdrop to that whole experience. Were they amazing seeing them in the wild, the polar bears? Yeah, they were immense. And, they, and you know, we'd, we arrived at, at, at night time on the tundra and, you know, checked into our, our buggies and um, our cosy kind of bunk accommodation. And, um, but, and how it works is you head out for eight hours, then your buggy, your buggy detaches from the lodge and you kind of go on essentially a safari, right? <clears throat> but um, so we were all geared up to leaving in the morning at eight o'clock, but I was actually in the dining carriage at night, um, relaxing, glass of wine, listening to um, a bit of music and actually was finishing off my column for the examiner. I always try and get the, they never, you, I never managed to kind of um, clear my workload before I head away. But, um, and it was when the laptop light went out, when I closed, finally closed my laptop, that um, a bear just suddenly just kind of lumbered past um, my window outside. So that totally, you know, caught me off guard and like you know took my breath away but um so it turned out that there was a few bears um who were um denning out in in the willows for the night and then we subsequently um went on to see I would say maybe um I mean they were very abundant um even though they're sadly their um outlook is very dismal as a result of um, climate change but we saw perhaps over the course of three days uh, maybe 15 different bears um you know then on engaged in various a uh, varying activity over the few days so it could have been you know lone males or a mother and cub or a mother and two cubs or um and you know it was they were you know playing and sparring and um eating kelp and it's quite fascinating they come into Churchill um to to essentially rest up and try and conserve as much energy as possible until the snow freezes 
and they can go out and hunt again because the polar bears need sea ice to hunt. Um, uh, ringed seals are their main prey. And so they lose about a, a kg of weight um, every day. So um, while they're in on 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 land and so essentially the you know the 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 the, the big freeze if we call it that can't come quick enough but it just seems to be um being delayed every year so this year I, I I've been like checking up on you know the various Instagram accounts since I left a couple of weeks ago and the big freeze hasn't really I don't think it's even kicked in just yet so the, these guys are still waiting and it's about a month later this year so that only not only does that mean one month that the bears have to kind of conserve their energy on dry land it also eats in I mean it literally I mean well or figuratively eats into their feeding time out on the ice pack so um while the bears bar one looked um very healthy and in good in good fettle um you know our 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 colleagues from the from polar bears international as well as our guides were saying that they're definitely seem to be getting smaller over the years and you know do you find that now with like your travel writing that that's sort of something you like to get more involved in is is you know that here you know it's it's such a tricky area now isn't it travel writing and traveling and conservation and climate change you know are you more aware of that now or is that an area that you've always been interested in yeah, I've definitely, I mean, definitely been aware of it. And actually, I was the the the, the week that the that Trump introduced the travel ban. I'd actually meant to was planning on flying out to California to work for a, a new organization called the Conservation Fund, which I was really excited about. That was actually um, very cool because they um, they're one of America's largest private owners of. Um, private protected land often a bit of a kind of a a conduit before land gets onto um becomes um sold to national parks essentially and so they had just bought a um region um in southern california which had been quite which had really gone viral on instagram for what they call the poppy apocalypse so every springtime there's an explosion of poppies in this um southern californian valley and as a consequence the town has been completely overrun by uh tourists and instagram essentially instagrammers right and they're you know trotting through all this this fauna to get their or flora even to get their pick and so the conservation fund bought this land to to protect it but i guess that's i mean so i mean but i've definitely always had an interest in um wildlife and conservation and trying to be um, without also being aware of the massive irony um of my own carbon footprint um i do at least try to um certainly i i mean i have a natural kind of leaning towards kind of wildlife and um kind of low octane adventures in 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 general but um you know the best you know that that trip to um to manitoba i got a a a a much appreciated but you know but smaller shall we say media discount so it was like a massive splurge on my part but i guess my point here is that i remember camping in um Algonquin National Park maybe three hours north of Toronto before and you know for 50 bucks or whatever it was um camping with you know a a pack of wolves you know howling as they made their way and you know around our tent now there may have been a mile away they may have been 10 you know how those howls like apparently can travel for miles still felt pretty close but I guess what I'm saying is that kind of experience um you know you can get that those incredible access to nature adrenalines for very little money too so um so that's that's i guess where i has always been a kind of a um a preference of mine that's like my ultimate thrill you know seeing a wild animal somewhere i typically tend to try and find a new destination and oh where can i see a a moose i mean maybe there's kind of i mean there's definitely a kind of a 
and I'm, I'm kind of an, an obnoxious, almost kind of kind of wildlife colonialism about it. Like, where can I go next to see to you know to take this off my list? You know what I mean? There's something kind of vulgar about it, but um, it's it could be worse, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's a good vice a vice you love seeing wild animals in the wild you know as as vices go it it is but i suppose you know like i was saying earlier with you know the seven billion of us who never see the inside of an airplane there's still one billion of us traveling every year and um it had been growing exponentially prior to the pandemic i'm sure it'll uh, kick up kick off again and with you know population growth you do kind of wonder you know if everyone is going uh it's all very well for tom bernock to be going off the beaten track but if everyone is doing what i i think i'm being so niche oh i go off the beaten track you know but then if we're all, if we're all going off the beaten track you know where does that leave natural landscapes and i know um places like um iceland are really trying to eradicate that whole problem by being very strict and where where people can uh go off piste shall we say with their hikes and what have you otherwise you know there's the the concern despite what we may say about the um Greta generation being very environmentally conscious I um I often um get a bit disconcerted about seeing um <laughs> you know litter in every kind of corner I may get to so thank you so much Tom for this I've taken so much of your time I there's one question which I forgot to say to you actually which I ask everybody oh, yeah. and it's if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths where is your happy place and why? And it could be anywhere. Okay. Um, I think I'm a real, um, um, the, it's a German, um, exp- I'm probably sure it's the same, same in English. I'm sure the way, the journey is the destination kind of guy. So I, I actually think nothing, I all, for me, I love the idea of sitting into a new rental car, slamming that door. It's, it's probably usually in North America because I love that kind of landscape and just that sense of it's you're just, you are our friend or whoever, but like in that kind of refuge of a car heading off on a great adventure and kind of not, not knowing what's ahead of you. Yeah. And are you really comfortable traveling on your own then? Oh, uh, yeah, massively. I mean, you know, I mean, whether it's with like a boyfriend or a friend or or, or by myself, they all have their um, advantages, right? It's always maybe it's like, you know, it's always a buzz to kind of share those experiences with people. And that's probably one of the best things about my job that I've been able to share this with like some of my best friends and what have you. But um, yeah, it's certainly, um, I definitely feel very much at home and doing what I should be doing when I'm like you know venturing off on some kind of like 700 mile schlep across Quebec or wherever so Tom thanks so much that was brilliant thank you so much yeah, thanks Virgil. it's great to chat to you I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast so a new episode will appear in your library every week I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergal. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Fergal.